How's everybody doing? Oh, let me ask that again. That was, how's everybody doing? All right. That was way better. Okay. Um, Really excited about uh, continuing our sermon series. If you have not been with us for the last couple weeks or haven't been on the website and heard where we've been, we've been in the middle of a sermon series, as Pastor Denise mentioned, the title of which is Life As It Should Be. And what we've been wrestling with is this idea that in the words of Jesus, in the texts of Scripture we've been studying, Matthew 5 to 7, it's known as the Sermon on the Mount, that we get exposure to Jesus' mind, his thoughts, his will. And in those words, we get a vision of how life was intended to be, life as it should be. Yet, if we're honest, for all of us, at some level, there's a disconnect, there's a dissonance between life as it is versus how God intends it to be. And so our prayer is as, that we, as we wrestle and sit with Jesus and these words, that we'll be transformed and we'll be brought closer to his will and intention for our lives. And so toward that end, we're going to continue where we left off. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 to 6. And it says this. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, thank you for this opportunity to come before your word with hungry, with open, expectant hearts. We so deeply need you to speak to us. Holy Spirit, glorify Jesus. Reveal him. Magnify him. May we grow in love and obedience toward you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name, amen and amen. You know, this past week uh, was a pretty significant week for my wife, Erin, and I, and that we celebrated 15 years of marriage. Yes, thank you. Um, and honestly, all of that applause uh, goes to her um, because... She's put up with me for 15 years. Um, I'm not that easy to be with. You guys see me on Sundays, and this is part of my best self um, when I'm in Scripture, when I'm teaching Scripture. Um, but there are moments where I'm not the best, and, um, but the rest of the moments, I'm pretty awesome. And so anyway, um, but she, uh, we celebrated 15 years of marriage, and this was really incredible because we got away for two days with no kids. Oh my gosh, it was amazing. I didn't miss them at all. Um, 
we went to this place called Mystic, Connecticut. I don't know if you've ever been there. Um, it's pretty famous for this pizza shop that's very overrated. But anyway, um, <laughs> that's that New York arrogance. Our pizza's the best. And so we were down there, and this was the most anti-New York moment that I could describe. I was like, never experienced this. Because in New York, as you know, if you stay like a little too long in the street, a car will run you over and like expect you to apologize, you know? Like, so I didn't know the rules down there because it's one street, main street, two-way traffic. The rules there is that if you literally stand in the section that indicates you're about to walk, even if you don't walk, if you just stand there, cars are obligated to stop. And so again, my wife and I are just oblivious to the world. We're just ecstatic, you know, no kids around us. And we happened to be standing there, not knowing that we were causing mayhem on the main street of Connecticut. And so as we're there, this woman pulls up, and when I tell you, she lost it. Lost it. At that moment, I felt like I was back in New York. And so she literally, as, as I look, she's like, in the car, I'm like, what the heck? I'm just here minding my business trying to celebrate life. And why is this woman screaming at us? And, and, and as she rode off, she never recovered. Never recovered. I saw her going down Main Street still. And so, I don't, so this car was nice enough to tell us. He pulls up and he's like, hey, over here, we get fined if we don't stop for you guys, if you're standing there. And so... I share that story because as I saw that woman lose her sense of self and she never recovered, it was honestly a funny image of what Jesus is talking about in this text. And you're like, wait, what do you mean? Where is this going? Let me tell you. So one of the things that we wrestle in Scripture with that Scripture makes us understand is that righteousness is not something that is attained. It's actually something that's received. It's given by God. And it could only be received by faith through grace. It's not something that's earned. But what we see in this passage, Jesus is addressing his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. This is not a sermon that's directed toward people that don't follow Jesus. If you don't follow Jesus and you read these words, they will be inspiring, they'll be interesting, but they'll also be impossible for you to follow through because they weren't intended for any human being to try to obey them apart from his intervention, his grace, his power at work in our lives. But what we found is that throughout this discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus keeps having this kind of back and forth conversation with a group of people called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, what we discovered is that their idea of righteousness was something that was completely external, outward behavior, even if it lacked inner integrity. That in, it, the Pharisees were famous for having all these corrupt things that they allowed and they thought were okay as long as outwardly they could display that they were pious and they were religious. And what we find is that Jesus, throughout this discourse, is keep, he keeps returning us to his will and his desire for us is that we would have an inner righteousness, that we would be transformed from within, and that that transformation would come through his hands, through his work. 
And so back to the image of the car of that woman, at that moment, I I thought it was an amazing picture of what sometimes our lives feel like, which is outward chaos and inner incongruence. And we lose it, and we can't get a hold of it. And there's all, there's, we're going in different directions at the same time. We can't tell up from down, left from right. And Jesus, he's speaking to us about something very important in this passage. And as we unpack it, what we'll discover if we remember things that he said before is that there's actually kind of a tension that needs to be resolved here. Because what we see, first, the first verse, he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And so Jesus here, he's talking about outward visible acts of righteousness. And as we unpack this, what's interesting is how he talks about this. Look at what verse 2 says. He says, thus when you give to the poor or to the needy. And then also look at verse 6. But when you pray... Go into your room. And later on in the chapter, uh, chapter 6, he talks about fasting. And he uses the same kind of phrase, when you fast. Jesus, from his perspective, there's actually an expectation from Jesus to his followers that we will be people of prayer. It's not if you pray, but it's when you pray. From Jesus' perspective, we will be a people of justice. It's not if you give to the poor, it's when you give to the poor. From Jesus' perspective, we will be a people of fasting. So it's not if you fast, it's when you fast. And what's interesting is that we live in a moment of time where Christianity has been so diluted that if you find someone who follows Jesus and consistently prays, gives to the poor and fast, it's almost like you found a unicorn riding on a Yeti. It's just like, whoa, we didn't know you existed. We've heard of you, the legend. Like, it, it, it's so diluted, yet from Jesus' perspective, if you and I are his followers, he expects us to be people that have these visible outward acts of righteousness. Yet, he's talking to us about something far deeper than just outward visible acts of righteousness. Because if we are following his train of thought, in chapter 5, if you remember, what did Jesus call us? He said, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. And remember in those words, what did he say? He says, let your light shine so that when people see your life, your deeds, they'll give glory to the Father. Yet here, he's kind of saying the opposite. He's saying, beware of doing things to be seen. And so there's a tension that we have to wrestle with because if earlier he's telling us to let our light shine, but here he's telling us to be careful, what is he actually saying? What is Jesus wanting us to pay attention to? And this, I want you to really kind of Come closer in your heart. Lean in to what we're going to talk about in the next few moments because what Jesus tells us is so important and it has to penetrate our hearts because what essentially he's saying to us is that motives matter. Motives 
matter. Can you say that with me? Motives matter. You know, as I preach, the air conditioner is off, and you see me suffering up here for Jesus. If anyone can bring me like a towel or something, a paper towel, because this is a little distracting as my perspiration gets in my eyes. Um, And by the way, they turn off the AC because some people say that it gets cold, and whoever you are, don't let me know who you are, because... (laughs) So, motive matters. Thank you so much. So Jesus, he gives us these examples in this text. I'll have to buy you a new one, by the way. (laughs) My time is done. He gives us examples of hypocrites. And he says that there are these hypocrites in the synagogue that they would do the following, which is actually really wild to think about. That sometimes the hypocrites in the synagogue would sound a trumpet. Thank you. Reinforcements. Um, (laughs) That hypocrites would sound the trumpet. Imagine this. Imagine you're in a room, it's quiet, and out of nowhere, a trumpet goes off. And you look in the direction of the trumpet, and at that moment, the person who blew the trumpet gives to the poor. Imagine. Imagine what's happening in a person's heart to actually do that. Actually, one of the commentaries had this phrase. It said, the Pharisees had a ravenous hunger for the praise of men. Imagine that they so badly wanted to be praised and esteemed and admired that they would be willing to draw attention to their own piety, even though, as we know, they were often very corrupt inside, that they had huge contradictions with God's law, but yet they wanted to be known outwardly as people who obeyed. It's huge hypocrisy that's happening here. But before we get uppity and create distance, it's like, oh, how could people like that do that? Actually, we're not that different from the Pharisees, in that inwardly, what would drive a person to want to be noticed for their good deeds is because deep down inside, we all wrestle with this tension that often we feel like we have to earn our place at God's table. And we earn that place through our good deeds. And that if we do good, then he'll love us. We'll be at peace with him will earn his love. And this goes deep inside of us. I remember years ago, my mom was actually selling her home. um, And so I came with her to the closing, just kind of like lower her anxieties and stuff. Um, And I was there and it was the most fascinating New York moment that I could remember because I'm there and I've never felt like more of a Gentile in my life because all of a sudden, realized the person representing the bank was Jewish, the title company was Jewish, the real estate lender was Jewish, the secretary was Jewish, and we walk in and none of them have ever met each other before. But before the closing was done, hey, you're so-and-so's nephew and cousin, and, and our family stories are being traded. It was the most, I, and so I'm just sitting there enjoying it. And, and it was a long closing. I'll spare you the details. What should have been like an hour was a couple hours because a bunch of different contracts that had to be figured out. So I get bored. So I try to create entertainment. And so I start trying to have conversations. I say, hey, you guys look like 
you know, your, your men about town. Um, it was, uh, uh, there were two partners in this real estate company. One was a, a practicing Jew, and the other one was not a practicing Jew, is what I find out. And I was like, hey, what's the best steakhouse in New York City? I was just trying to create conversation. And the practicing Jew, like, sells out his friend. And he says, oh, he'll tell you, because he eats anything. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is, this is a moment. What's going on? <laughs> I was like, what does that mean? He was like, and, and this guy was Israeli, and he says, oh, I eat shrimp. And I was like, oh, wow. This was if you don't know, that's not kosher food. It's typically, there's not what practicing Jews eat. And so I kind of lost my mind for a moment, I'll admit, because I asked a very inappropriate question. I said, do you eat bacon? And I realized afterwards, like, man, that's like kind of offensive. But I was so curious. I was like, you eat shrimp, so like, where's the line? You know what I'm saying? Like, and, and then this, his response was the most amazing response. He says, no, 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 I don't eat bacon. I said, respectfully, sir, why? You eat shrimp. And he said, I need something to talk to God about. That's what he said. So literally, in his mind, he was abstaining from something in order for one day when he stands before God, for him to have something to show to God, give me credit for this. And at that moment, I felt so sad. I said, what? An awful image of God to carry. It's a torturous image to think that you and I have to live on a daily basis with kind of like an accounting book and saying, I need something to talk to God about. I need to behave in a certain way. We all struggle with this. But what this pulls out, and I need you to pay attention to this, As Christians, if we take Jesus' words seriously here, we'll find ourselves in a very strange position where we often have to repent from the good things we do. Chew on that for a second. Most people, the assumption is that God is just going to keep pointing out the bad things you do. Some of you might have even come in today conscious of some of the things you do that you know you're coloring outside the lines, and you're like, I know God doesn't like this, and this is what he wants to point his finger. Yet, we find Jesus spending an exorbitant amount of time talking about good things, good deeds, acts of obedience that he actually he expects his followers to do. And he talks about it from the vantage point of it's possible to do the right thing from the wrong motive. And if that's the case, now the right thing has become sinful. And what that reminds us powerfully is that you and I could never, should never, must never rest on our acts of obedience to be the basis of our confidence before God because what Jesus is exposing, even obedience could be done from a wrong motive. And if so, you find yourself standing on the quicksand, not a sure foundation. See, Jesus is talking to something deep within us in our tendency to try to prove 
our worth before God and earn our place, that we lean toward good works. And Jesus is reminding us it's possible to do obedient acts from a wrong motive. Here the motive that he's talking about is to be seen, to get glory from others, to get the praise of men. But that's not the only motive. It's possible to do the right thing for all sorts of motives. And if I could be honest, this text has been so like a, like a scalpel in my soul because it's hard to wrestle with this text and your motives not come up to ask, why did I do that? Did I do that for the attention of people? Do I want people to affirm me? Do I need their affirmation more than I need the affirmation of God? There's all these motivations that come to the surface. And so if Jesus is saying, you can't rest on your obedience, that can't be the thing you have confidence in because you could obey for the wrong motives. It is a reminder that our only confidence, the only thing we can rest is on the righteousness of Jesus that's been credited to us through faith, through grace. It's a righteousness that is not earned. It's received. That on top of our stained robes filled with shame and misdeeds and things that have been done to us, Jesus drops his robe of righteousness over us when we put our faith in him. And now that's our confidence. That's how we come before God. That's how we walk with him, trusting in his obedience, not ours, because even our obedience can be murky. And so we trust in his perfect obedience because as he's exposing, sometimes our obedience can be done for the wrong motive. So what this does it, it lowers the anxiety for all of us to know that your confidence in mine is never on our obedience. So if you're disobedient right now, if you're struggling, if inwardly you're far from God, if you have just resistance toward God, your righteousness doesn't rest on your obedience. It rests on his perfect obedience. But if right now you're in victory, you're moving forward, you have faith, you have promise for tomorrow, you feel amazing, you're like, life is great, your confidence shouldn't rest on your goodness. It should rest on his righteousness alone. Because Jesus is exposing the faultiness of basing anything on our righteousness because as he exposes, it's possible to obey for false motives. It's possible to outwardly portray ourselves as spiritual, as walking with God, and yet inwardly and privately that be the furthest thing from the truth. You know, for me, my report card, the thing I assess, is not my preaching, it's not what people say about me, it's what my kids say, it's what my wife says. And I'll be honest, they don't always give me a great report card. They let me know that you need to work on that. This is off. Why are you acting this way? Why does this trigger you in this way? That's the real report card because up here it's easy to portray myself in a certain way. But privately, 
Am I seeking God? Am I in love with Jesus or do I love ministry more? These are the questions I ask. Do I crave to be with God more than I crave to be in front of people? What are your questions? What are the questions around your obedience that you need to wrestle with? Because this looks different for all of us. You know, Jesus here is talking about people who want to outwardly portray their piety, but the reality is, is that for some of us, the true state of our lives is like, I'm not sure I have a lot of piety to portray. I'm not trying to flaunt my spirituality because if I'm honest, I'm struggling. I'm not there. I'm not where I want to be. I'm not where I believe God wants me to be. And so I'm not trying to brag about my spirituality because I'm struggling in my walk with God. Whether you're struggling or whether you feel strong, Jesus exposing the faulty foundation of your obedience and mine as the basis of our confidence before God is good news for all of us. Because it's his righteousness, his obedience that we stand on. But notice, in this text, Jesus draws attention to something that's actually really interesting. Because if you've been around the Christian faith, if you've come to our church for a number of weeks or months, you probably have heard this on a few occasions, that your obedience in mine will never be the basis of God loving us. God will never love you and me based on our obedience. And isn't that amazing good news? It's an amazing thing that just does not cease to amaze me to this day. Gave my life to Christ when I was 14. I'm 42. Does not cease to amaze me all these years later that he loves me. The real me. The broken me. He loves me. And it's not based on my obedience. Yet, in this text, it tells us that something is based on our obedience. And that is our reward. It's an interesting tension to realize that as a Christian, you will never lack the love of God, but you could lack his rewards. Let that settle in. Right now, you don't have to earn his rewards. Your obedience, uh, rather, you don't have to earn his love. Your obedience never shifts that. But he actually says that a person's reward from the Father is connected to their obedience. And this is what's amazing about that. God rewards obedience that is expected, that is rightly deserved toward him. It's, it's, he's not rewarding something that's exceptional. It's expected. But look at how good he is. Even when we do what he calls us to do, he rewards us. He blesses us. It's not a, that's not a picture of his love for us. I know people that have lots of money and people that have very little, and none of that's a reflection of God's love for them. None of these things reflect his love, but some of these things do reflect rewards for obedience. Let me tell you, if you are obedient in stewarding your resources, scripturally, we see that God will reward you with more. He will, if he can trust you with little, he will trust you with more. It's a reward for obedience. 
Does he love you more because he trusted you more? No. You just obeyed. And so rewards came commensurate to your obedience. And so Jesus is letting us know that in our obedience that he wants to meet us with rewards. Even though his love is never connected to our obedience, you and I could have rewards in our life based on our obedience. Rewards that we still don't deserve. And yet he's good to give it to us. So what this touches is that Jesus wants to empower in our lives obedience from a right motive. Here's the good news for us. What's impossible for you and I to do on our own, to obey from a right motive, Jesus wants to accomplish that in your heart and mine. The reason he's correcting obedience from a false motive is because he wants to highlight his will for our lives is obedience from a true motive, from a God-glorifying motive, obeying for the sake of the glory of God, not for our glory and our gain. That's our true north. That's where he wants us to head to. And that destination, he alone can take us there. You and I can't get there on our own. We won't get there. We'll constantly miss that coordinate. But Jesus, if we allow him to, if, if we walk with him as Lord over our lives and put our faith in him, what he does inside of us over time is that he changes the affections and desires and habits of our hearts so that we will want what he wants, resist what he resists, and he'll bring us to a place where we can obey from his motives at work in us. Imagine obeying God regardless of the consequences. Obeying God regardless if it makes your life comfortable or not. Obeying God whether people notice it or not. Obeying God whether you get a pat on the bat or not. Obeying God because your motives are, I want to glorify Jesus. I want the Father to be glorified. Jesus makes this possible and he rewards that when it's in our lives. And so the hope for us is that prayer, fasting, giving to the poor, these expectations that should be normal parts of a follower of Jesus' life can be done for the glory of the Father and not our glory. They can be done not to draw attention to ourselves. And I think in our day and age, this is very relevant because we're constantly being tempted to do things in the name of drawing attention to ourselves, whether it's likes and retweets and shares, whether it's, it's people knowing things about us. We're driven to curate images of ourselves, the best version of ourselves, the imagined version of ourselves. But Jesus loves the unfiltered you, the unfiltered me. And we end with these words that show up in this text a few times when Jesus says, they gave to the poor, they prayed because they wanted to be seen by people 
But then he corrects that. He says, when you pray, when you give, do it to the glory of the Father. And then he says this, because God who sees in secret will reward you openly. I want to focus our last few moments on that idea. God sees. Can you say that with me? God sees. What does he see? See, we, in this text, we notice that Jesus talks about hypocrites. It's an interesting word um, because actually it had a classical meaning at that time. And I want to read this quote from John Stott. He said, in classical Greek, the hypocrites was first an orator, then an actor. So figuratively, the word came to be applied to anybody who treats the world as a stage on which he plays a part. He lays aside his true identity and assumes a false one. He is no longer himself but in disguise, impersonating somebody else. He wears a mask. Now in a theater, there's no harm or deceit in the actors playing their parts. It's an accepted convention. The audience know they have come to a drama. They are not taken in by it. The trouble with the religious hypocrite on the other hand, is that he deliberately sets out to deceive people. He's like an actor in that he is pretending so that, we are, so that what we are seeing is not the real person but a part, a mask, a disguise. Yet he is quite unlike the actor in this respect. He takes some religious practice, which is a real activity, and he turns it into what it was never meant to be, namely a piece of make-believe a theatrical display before an audience, and it's all done for applause. Oof. Jesus is describing a really pain-filled life. What I mean by that is that it's painful to live life with this kind of disconnect where inwardly you are completely somebody else than the person you are portraying outwardly. But in particular, that takes on another level when we add religion to it. Because when we add religion, the underlying motive to that is let me put my best self forward because ultimately I think that's the self that God likes and loves. Yet, God sees. God sees. It's actually a moment of momentary insanity to be hypocritical to an all-seeing God. To put on a show when he sees past the facade. He sees past the platitudes. He sees past the phrases like, how you doing? I'm blessed. It didn't look blessed when you cursed that person out driving to church. It didn't look blessed when you were entertaining those thoughts this week on your own that you would never dare to repeat out loud. It didn't look blessed when you were struggling again with that cycle of addiction. And yet we portray this outward facade. Not just to people but ultimately to God. 
and yet he sees the real us. That's what Jesus is saying. He sees what's done in secret. He sees what nobody else sees. And can I tell you, the greatest deliverance from hypocrisy is that truth. Is that if God sees who I really am, then that empowers us to not be false. Because when he says he loves me and he loves you, he's talking about the real me, the real you. The one he fully sees. I know for some of us that's hard to say, wait, God loves me with my porn addiction? God loves me with the vile feelings I have toward my parents. God loves me toward these racist things I'm wrestling with. God loves me with, despite the fact I'm not managing my money well. God loves me even though I gossip and I'm divisive. God, lo God loves the real you, the petty, broken, narcissistic, depressed, sad, whatever, fill in the blank, you. He loves that person. And he invites you and I to not be hypocritical, to not put out an outward facade, but to actually come to him as we are because he wants to create an inner righteousness inside of us that doesn't need outward props, but actually is the real thing, a real obedience coming from our hearts. Perhaps it's time for some of us to let go of the facade. I know you wish you were in a better place, but if you're not, admit that. I know you wish you were past that struggle, that addiction, but if you're not, admit that. I know you wish you were whatever that wish is, but if you're not there, be honest about it. Before God and over time before others. You'll never stop lying before people if you can't stop lying before God. If you can't learn to be loved by him as you are, you'll always feel the need to dress yourself up before others as better than you actually are. It's a liberating thing to know that God fully sees you and fully loves you because that empowers you to be who you are regardless of what people may say or think. Because the opinion of the one who matters, you are sure of it, that he loves you, regardless of what he fully sees. But most of all, what we know from the scriptures is that when God looks at us, he doesn't just see our hearts for those of us who follow Jesus, he sees us in his son. He sees his atoning sacrifice, his love, his grace. He doesn't see cause to judge or to keep you at a distance. He sees cause to invite, to embrace, to parade you. and Look at, look at what my grace has done in this person's life. As we close, as the worship team comes forward, how powerful would it be if today, if you and I responded to this radical, powerful invitation from the living God to lay down our facades, to lay down our pretenses, 
to come as we are and to meet God in the reality of that. In this moment, as I invite us to stand and as we respond in prayer, there's one prerequisite that's needed for this moment. Just one thing. It's not obedience. It's not perfect faithfulness. It's honesty. To be honest before God. To bring who you really are. And say, God, it's unbelievable that you love the real me, but that's what your word tells me. So I'm going to let you love the real me. Imagine that. God wants to love the real you. And so much spiritual struggle is us not letting God love the real us. We present these images of ourselves to him that are not true. But today he wants to embrace the real you. Can I invite us, could we raise our hands in the presence of God as we respond in worship and prayer in these next few moments? And as we respond, the prayer team is in the back to my right, to your left over these next few moments. Feel free to slip out of your seat and go and receive prayer for anything you need prayer for, anything you're dealing with, carrying, anything the message might have stirred for you, and the words that were shared earlier, anything and everything. They'd love to pray with you. But in these next few moments, can we turn our hearts to God? Jesus, we come to you. A God who loves the real us. A God who strips away the idea of righteousness being something we earn and good works ever tipping the scales because you tell us it's possible to obey from false motives. Our only confidence in this moment is your perfect obedience, Jesus. We ride on the coattails of your obedience into the presence of the Father and we find ourselves enveloped by your grace and your love that's undeserved, unwarranted. And we surrender to the audacity of your love. Jesus, we love you. We praise you. We worship you. We turn to you now. Deliver us from hypocrisy. Create in us an inner righteousness that only you can create. Meet us now in this moment of honest surrender and worship. Let's turn to God together.